Let's open our Bibles now to the Paul's letter to the Ephesians, to the first chapter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Tonight, we will, we will take a bird's eye view of this book, and beginning next week, we'll, we will be taking a, a very detailed view of each of the verses of the book of Ephesians. We'll do a verse-by-verse study, but before we do that, I want to stand up on the mountaintop for a moment and look down at the entire book and get a survey of the book and kind of, kind of get an idea of how the book flows and the general ideas that Paul will present, and then as we move on, we'll get to specific about how those ideas are unfolded. So that's our purpose for tonight, and you will need your Bibles to follow along with what we are doing. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, written from Rome during his first imprisonment, is one of the most, is certainly one of the most influential doctrines or documents in the Christian church. Paul had visited Ephesus at the end of the second missionary journey, in the fall of 52. We studied that recently in the book of Acts. So the first time he visits Ephesus is at the end of the second missionary journey, 52. Although he stays there just a short period of time, perhaps as little as a week, maybe as much as a month, most likely somewhere in between that time, he developed a strong bond with the believers there and promised them, Lord willing, that he would return someday. That someday came about a year later in the fall of 53, during Paul's third missionary journey. This time, he doesn't just stay for somewhere between a week and a month. This time, he stays for two and a half years and and taught them, in his own words, through many trials, from house to house, with, with great tribulations, with tears, he teaches them publicly the whole purpose of God, to use his words. The intensity of that bond that was forged is seen in Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders, which is recorded in Acts chapter 20, which was given some time later on Paul's way to Jerusalem in the spring of 57. So there are at least three meetings that he has with them. At this time, he tells them in an emotional scene that they would, again, to use his words, see his face no more. He meant, of course, that they wouldn't see his face again on earth. At least he believed that would be the case. But of course they would be reunited in heaven. And isn't that one of the great comforts we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? If something was to happen to any one of us tonight, we may say farewell here, but we'll say hello again in heaven someday. So we may grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. That is one of the most wonderful things about being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have hope about the future. So we we may get in a position where we see each other's face no more, at least here, but in heaven we certainly will, and that was Paul's point. The point of the or the point of introduction here in missing those things is that Paul knew these people well. We're studying the letter to the Ephesians. He knew these people well. He was acquainted with their strengths and with their weaknesses, and he loved them very much. In addition, we should remember that most of what they knew about Christian theology came to them through the Holy Spirit from the Apostle Paul. So Paul's writing a letter to a church that he had previously ministered to in a great way, and he's the one that had taught them the theology that they know, say, as opposed to a letter like the letter to the Romans. The letter to the Romans has a very extended introduction because they didn't know Paul, or at least he had never been there. It's, it's very likely that they knew him by reputation. It's very likely that the churches or church, the church or churches in Rome were founded by Pauline converts. But in Ephesus, he knows these people very, very well. He loves them very much. And you're going to see that deep bond of love 
come through in the way that he writes this letter. Ephesus, at least by way of a reminder from last week, Ephesus was a large city by ancient standards. Probably about a quarter of a million people. 250,000 people resided in Ephesus. It, it was probably the third most important city in the world at that time, behind only Rome and Athens in terms of its influence. So Paul is ministering in a very important place. Athens, I mean rather Ephesus, well like Athens too, but Ephesus was known for its architecture. There's a theater in Athens that was, that was prominent in the book of Acts, Paul's taken there, that sat 24,000 p- people. Actually, it's an amphitheater. It's not a full theater like the, like I used to say, well, I said the summit, but uh, where, where Lakewood Church is now, I don't know how many people that holds, but when it was a basketball arena, it held 16,100 people. When it was full, this theater wasn't even a round theater like that, and it held 24,000 people. This was a huge, huge structure. The Temple of Artemis that was there as well, huge huge structure that the stadium there are remnants of it still there the temple only has a pillar or two still there but it was a very very important city not only for architectural reasons but for trade reasons it was also a very important city for religious reasons and we saw that when we studied the book of acts but it was probably the third most important city in the world at the time in terms of its influence one more note of introduction, perhaps this might help you keep things organized in your mind. And I hope this will. This, this helps me to kind of keep these things all structured and organized. By the time Paul writes Ephesus, by the time he writes Ephesus, somewhere between 60 and 62 A.D., he had already written several letters. He had written Galatians after his first missionary journey. He wrote First and Second Thessalonians on his second missionary journey. Then on his third missionary journey, he had written 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Romans. It's, it's helpful to me sometimes to remember that Paul had written Romans probably five years before he writes Ephesians. Now, these are the two most theological, or, or two books that have the, the deepest theology probably in the New Testament. Some would make arguments for others, but that's generally agreed. He wrote Romans first. If we want to go in real order of, of theology, he wrote Galatians first. And then he writes Romans after that, and he writes Ephesians a little bit later. So you're going to see things developed in terms of the way Paul writes in his style here a little bit as well. So Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, as well as Romans, had already been written by the time Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians. Now, at the time he writes Ephesians, and it's, it's really debatable as to which ones of these he writes first, but he's going to write four letters from prison, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So he'll write all those about the same time. And then after this, after he's released from this Roman imprisonment, he'll write three final letters. He'll write a letter to Timothy and one to Titus, probably about the same time. And then finally, in around 68 A.D., he'll write his final testament, his final testimony, if you prefer, that is called Second Timothy. So Paul writes Ephesus, uh, writes the letter to the Ephesians, rather, approximately approximately six to seven years before his death. By the time he writes the letter to the Ephesians, Paul is most likely in his early 60s. It's, it's not uh, written in stone anywhere, but it is, is, is very probable that Paul and our Lord were about the same age. Paul was probably born around this, the, the time of the beginning of the first century. If that's the case... Then he's doing this ministry. He's in prison now, probably somewhere around the time when he's in very late 50s, early 60s, and he will be executed by, ne- by the orders of Nero in Rome 
when he's probably somewhere around the years 67 to 68, if that helps you to put things in perspective. It helps me sometimes to kind of visualize when these things were done. But the main thing I want you to see then is Romans is written before Ephesians. The letter to the Romans, or I'm sorry, the letter to the Ephesians, rather, is structured much like many of Paul's other letters. It has a doctrinal section, and it has an applicational section. Or if you prefer, it has a, it has a theological section and a moral and ethical sec- section. The first three chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians is doctrinal, heavy, heavily doctrinal, and the second three chapters are heavily applicational. Paul knew nothing. In fact, no scripture writer knew anything about the type of Christian ethic that would just know and not do. Paul gives us some heavy theology in the first three chapters, but Ephesians doesn't end at the end of chapter 3. Just like James said, if you want to really say that I have been quick to hear, not only do you need to know the word, but you need to do the word. So that's why most of Paul's letters are organized that way. He gives you heavy theology, and then he... He calls upon us all to live a certain way based upon that theology that we have. Now listen, we said a minute ago that that the letter to the Ephesians is at least among the deepest of all of Paul's letters. It's going to be really heavy theology in those first three chapters. So is is it really going to be surprising to any of us that the behavior that he calls us to in the last three chapters is is pretty significant behavior? It's pretty... um, pretty deep Christian behavior as well. And that makes sense. If we've got all this incredible information about God, then we need to do some incredible things with it. And we're not going to be able to do it on our own. We're going to only do it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's ministry is certainly prominent in this particular letter. Now, with regard to part one, the theology part or the applicational part, the first two verses are like most openings of letters in the ancient world, Paul introduces himself in the beginning. You see, this is a very brief introduction. He already knows these people, as opposed to that 17-verse introduction that we have in the book of Romans. There is only one real problem in the first, with regard to the introduction in the first two verses, and that is probably marked off by brackets or a, or a marginal note in your Bibles. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus, or in Ephesus. Most of your Bibles will have a little note about that. If you're glancing down at that now, you probably will see that. So there is a textual problem as to whether those terms, those two words were actually in the original Greek text. I believe that they they probably were, although it's certainly not a sure thing, but I'll, I'll reserve comment on that for next week. But that's the introduction. Paul is introducing himself. Just like most ancient letters, he tells you who it's from first. Modern letters don't do that so much. We have... Uh, Dear Bob, then we have the body of the letter, and then we put, sincerely, Bruce. Well, they just put it right up front. (laughs) Before they even put the the, the Bob and the Bruce in the beginning at the end, they would put Bob and Bruce in the the very beginning. So all that's out of the way up front. Paul is just following the pattern of a normal letter of the ancient world. Then in verses 3 through 14, Paul, of, of chapter 1, Paul expresses the fact that God is worthy to be praised. Because of what he has done. He has bestowed upon us every spiritual blessing. And then Paul's going to list these spiritual blessings in three major categories. He's elected us, or if you prefer, he chose us. He graciously redeemed us. And he's given us an inheritance which is secured by the Holy Spirit. 
So in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, he has bestowed upon us every spiritual blessing. This is a dynamite sentence. And yes, I said sentence, because verses 3 through 14 are actually one sentence in the original Greek text. Now that's a lot for us. One sentence that reads, I think it's 202 words, something like that. It's, just, it's a really, really long sentence, and that's a lot for us. It's, it wasn't so much for thinkers of an ancient time. And, and I think we can illustrate that without going back to first century uh, Greece in, in order to do this. If you go back and read literature, English literature, that was written in the first part of the 1900s, go back and read, for example, Lewis Sperry Chaffer's He That Is Spiritual. Or read some of C.S. Lewis's work that was done quite a bit later than that. Go back to G.K. Chesterton, who wrote about the same time that C.S. Lewis, that uh, Lewis Ferry Chafer. Did I say C.S. Lewis? Lewis Ferry Chafer in the beginning. He wrote about that time, the early part of the 1900s. Go back and read that writing, and you'll see that their sentence structure is much more challenging than the structure that we use today. They didn't live in an era of nine-second sound bites. You had to be able to think in order to read their writings. They had extended clauses and dependent clauses there. They may have a verb, and that governs thing that, that, that goes half a page. Literally, when I read Plato back in, in college at the, at the University of Houston, you would have readings of Plato that, would, that a single sentence would cover most of one page. That, that's odd for us, but it wasn't odd for them. So when we see this sentence, it's beautiful. It can be a little complicated. We'll try to make it, uh, we'll, we'll try to simplify the structure as much as we can. But it's a very complicated sentence in, in, for our minds in that way, in terms of its length. But it, that sentence is beautiful because it tells us that God is worthy to be praised. The book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, begins with God and how wonderful he is and, how, and what he has done for us in grace. He elected us or he chose us. He, he redeemed us. In grace he redeemed us. In love he redeemed us. And he's given us an inheritance that can't be lost because it's secured by the Holy Spirit himself. And three times, three times in this in this one sentence, he'll use the phrase, to the praise of his glory, verse 6, to the praise of his glory, verse 12, and to the praise of his glory in verse 14. Each of those sections, in the first part he's, he's speaking of God the Father, the second part he's speaking of God the Son, and the third part he's speaking about God the Holy Spirit. But do you see that that phrase, which, which, is, which is very critical in governing our understanding of that passage, that's letting us know that God is worthy to be praised. So before Paul goes any further with this letter, he gets, a, he gets some real heavy theology in right at the beginning. And, and the result of that heavy theology, we should look at God and say, Wow! That's incredible! Look who he is! Before we go any further with it, with all the wonderful things that he's going to teach us, we need to first focus upon God. And should that surprise us? It shouldn't surprise us at all. That's, that's where our focus needs to be in the first place, is on God. And so we're going to start off in this letter to the Ephesians, with a bang, in verses 3 through 14, which are all one sentence in the book. The phrase, to the praise of his glory, dominates this important sentence. The remainder of chapter 1 is a prayer that Paul makes for wisdom and for revelation. There are a couple prayers in the book of Ephesians, and they are just absolutely wonderful prayers. So that's chapter 1. In chapter... In chapter 2, Paul speaks of our new condition that we have in Christ, both individually and corporately. In verses 1 through 10, he speaks of our new condition 
individually. In the first part of this particular chapter, in verses 1 through 3, Paul tells us about a problem that we have. Now, this is not unique to the letter to the Ephesians. Sometimes people ask me, what do I think the best, who makes the best gospel tracts? Well, I don't know. I'm not in a position to, to make judgment on all gospel tracts. But I will say this, among the best gospel tracts that I have read would certainly be the work of Larry Moyer at Evantel. Larry has a very simple process when, that he goes through when he teaches people about evangelism in, in his own evangelistic pamphlets. And I think they're good pamphlets. Uh, first, he, he, Larry has what's, what he calls a bad news, good news approach. Bad news is we're lost and we're in need of a Savior, and there's nothing we can do about it ourselves. The good news is Christ did something about it, and if we'll place our faith in him, faith alone in Christ alone, that's why I like Larry. He's, a, he's very to the point. He doesn't mix it up with a whole lot of extra details that aren't essential. Faith alone in Christ alone, you can take care of that problem will be taken care of. Paul does the same thing in this letter to the Romans. There's bad news. The bad news is that all of us are born in need of a Savior, the immoral person, the moral person, and the Jew. The good news is, is we can be justified by grace through faith apart from works. And that's chapter 3, and then the rest of the book uh, unfolds from there. The, the, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, is very similar in these ten verses. The first three verses tell us of the problem. He's speaking to the Ephesians about a time before they were saved. So he's going back in time with them. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now he's speaking to people who are alive now. So he can't be speaking about physical death there. Of course not. He's talking about they were in a spiritually dead status. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Then in verse 3 he goes on to say, Among them too we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Now we're going to spend some time in that paragraph, uh, try, doing our best to understand every word, but the point is, in this new position, or this new condition that we have individually, we need to understand that we started off behind the eight ball, so to speak. We started off in trouble. Oh, and then, in verses 4 through 10, we find out some incredible news that that bad situation that we were in, just like Larry Moyer's pamphlets, that bad situation they were in has been remedied, but not because of anything we've done, because of the work of Christ on the cross. Now, perhaps the, the most well-known set of verses in the book of Ephesians, book or letter, forgive me, I'll go back and forth using that terminology, are Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. I never forget, I, you know, I don't know if I have a block on me now or if there's something that's written in a book somewhere, don't go to his house, but I don't get any Jehovah's Witness to come to my house anymore. I really wish that I, I would, or maybe they come and I'm not there because I'd love to talk to them. Now, I'm not saying that, that you should, especially if you're a, a lady at home by yourself, I'm not saying you should ever invite anyone in. Uh, that's, that may not be the best thing, but, but when I'm there, I like to invite them in because instead of shooing them away, they're folks that are looking to speak about spiritual things. I'd love nothing better to than to speak about spiritual things. But I remember one time I was talking to some really nice folks, really nice people, and they were saying that salvation was by grace through faith plus works. I said, that's interesting you would say that. There are a couple of verses in the Bible that, that would seem to directly contradict that view. And he said, well, I don't think there are. I said, well, I, I think maybe let's look at a couple. And we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. And this was an honest person. I appreciate him. Listen, by the way, they don't want to be out on the street any more than you want them out on the street. You do realize they're doing that to earn their way to heaven. They feel like if they don't take that trip, if they don't go up and down the street, there's something wrong with their spiritual life, and they're not going. 
So have sympathy for them. Um, you don't have to have sympathy for their views, but I feel sorry for them in doing this. But I read these verses to them. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works. Lest any man should boast. You know what that person did? He said, I've never seen that verse before. I looked in their Bible. I think it says the same thing in their Bible. Not a result of works. And because he was an honest person, he said, you know, I'm going to go check that out. I'll check that out and I'll come back and I'll talk to you. I said, well, when you're doing that, check out Titus chapter 3 as well. You know, there's, there's another good one in there uh, that, that says essentially the same thing. So in, with regard to our new condition individually, we, we are just thrilled that God has saved us as individuals. Now, uh, we'll talk about it a lot when we get to it, but don't get so wrapped up in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that we miss Ephesians 2, 10. That happens to us a lot because the chapter or the paragraph doesn't end with verse 9. It ends with verse 10, which says that we've, because we've been saved, we've been called to a certain behavior. And isn't that just like Paul? Here he goes again. You know, he, he tells us we have these privileges, and because we have these privileges, we're, we're expected to act, to think, to talk in a certain way. So Paul is, uh, is writing in these first verses to speak about our new con- condition individually. But that's not all. In verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2, he speaks about our, very, very plural word, our condition corporately. Our condition corporately in this last part of chapter 2. Both Jews and Gentiles who place their faith in Christ are part of one corporate body in Christ. Now, that's a new condition. We have a new condition individually, but there's also a new condition for us corporately. This is one of the major themes in the book of Ephesians. God designed the body of Christ to be a corporate unity motivated by love. A corporate unity motivated by love. The ideas of unity and love are key themes in this letter to the Ephesians. A corporate unity motivated by love. Since unity without love is forced unity and is therefore not really true unity at all. It's not authentic unity if I make you get along. You know, have you ever had a couple that's not, not really doing that well, and you sit down and you talk to them, maybe you haven't had the pleasure, it doesn't do a whole lot of good. So you guys, go home and get along. Don't want to hear any more from you. Typically wouldn't really work real well. Because forced unity is not really authentic unity. They may pretend, and they say, oh, okay, no problem, we'll do that. Because they can't get out of your office fast enough because they think you're some sort of nutcase. And you would be in that case if you tried to force unity, because forced unity is not really authentic unity at all. The Ephesians, before they're going to have unity, must love each other. They must love each other. But since forced love, I can say, you need to love your spouse. You need to love that friend. Well, forced love is not really love either. So before they can either have unity, they can, before they have unity, they've got to learn how to love. And that's going to be part of this letter. Paul writes this letter, at least in part, to encourage them to love both God and their fellow believer, regardless of race, more deeply. 
regardless of their race. And we've talked about race today between, say, the race relations between people that are white skin and people that are black skin or people that are black skin and people that have brown skin or white and brown skin or whichever combination you want to get it, give it. And we, we think of those as racial issues today, but that wasn't the racial issue that existed in the ancient world. It was a racial issue between Jew and Gentile. So in chapter 2, Paul will lay the foundation for the admonition that he's going to give them that they should function as a corporate unity. In the body of Christ, he will say, he has already said when he wrote his letter to the Galatians, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile in the body of Christ. There's no male, there's no female, there's no slave, there's no free. You remember that verse back from Galatians chapter 3? Paul's going to expound on that in this letter to the Ephesians, which again was written a decade or so after he wrote Galatians. In the body of Christ, there are none of these distinctions. Now listen, if you, were, if you have Jewish blood in you and you become a Christian, you still have that Jewish blood in you. Here's a shocker. If you're a female and you become a Christian, you're still a female. If you were a slave and you became a Christian, you're still a slave. So that's, he doesn't mean that they're, they're obliterated in that sense. But when we gather together in the body of Christ, there is no distinction. There's no superiority. There's no inherent superiority between a Jewish person who has come to Christ over a Gentile person who has come to Christ, or vice versa. We're all one in the body. There is a corporate unity, and that corporate unity can only be enjoyed if it's enjoyed uh, with love. So in chapter 2, our new condition individually is, is uh, expanded upon in verses 1 through 10, and then our new condition corporately in verses 11 through 22. Then in chapter 3. In the first part of chapter 3, Paul expounds upon the concept of the mystery that he identifies in verse 6 of chapter 3. Sometimes we talk about the mystery doctrines or, or the mystery doctrine. Well, I love what Paul does here for us because he specifies what that mystery is. He says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So in the first part of chapter 3, Paul expounds upon the, the doctrine or the concept of the mystery, and he identifies that mystery in verse 6. He says, To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now this would lead me to believe, at least it's a hint to me, that the people that re had the real problem with, with thinking they had an air of superiority were the Jewish believers. In Ephesus. Wouldn't, wouldn't that make you think that? Because if there's a mystery, and he's having to explain this to people, he's saying, listen, your Gentile brothers, they are your brothers, they are, they are just as important in the body of Christ as you are. They are fellow heirs. Not only that, they're fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There needs to be a corporate unity. This, and this he speaks of as a mystery. Now this might seem like a no-brainer to us today. But it was not in the first century. It wasn't a no-brainer to them at all. And we need to keep this in mind. The Jews were God's chosen people. And they knew it. Everybody knew it. And it was a challenge to them, or at least to many of them, to learn that the Gentiles were not just associate members in the church. They were full members of the body of Christ. You know how different clubs have different levels of membership? You know, there's... A, they're associate membership for people who really don't qualify in some way, either financially or maybe academically. But you can, if you want to come to our meetings, you can, be, you can come to our meetings 
And you can pay a lesser fee for your membership, but it's, we're going to call that an associate membership. But then if you have all the academic qualifications, you have all the financial qualifications or whatever it may be, you can have full membership in this organization. Well, the body of Christ is not like that. There are no associate memberships in the body of Christ. None. If you're in, you're a full member with the full rights and privileges, the same rights and privileges that everyone else has. Now, Paul understands that this is not going to be easy. Because, again, he knows unity cannot be forced. So in verses 14 through 19, in the first 13 verses, he outlines uh, that aspect of unity, an exposition on the the mystery. But in verses 14 through 20, he prays. Because he knows that this is not going to be an easy task. He knows unity can't be forced. So he prays that their love would be strengthened. He wants them to have unity, but in order for them to have unity, he prays that their love would be strengthened. See, love's got to come before unity. And then finally, he'll pause in verses 20 and 21, and he ends the doctrinal section with a beautiful doxology of praise to God. One of my favorite in all the Bibles. He says, Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to all the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So he begins the doctrinal section or the theological section with this incredible sentence that runs from verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1 that tells us how great God God is and how worthy he is to be praised because of all he's done for us. And then he ends this doctrinal section with a tremendous doxology, which is an expression of praise. And he expresses again that God is able to do all these things so much far and above anything we should ever ask or think. Now, it's interesting, this follows, this follows a prayer that they would have their love strengthened so that they could exercise unity. You know, sometimes I, I know that when we pray, there's, there are thoughts that go through our mind. There's just, I'll, I'll ask that, but there's no way that one's happening. You know how that happens sometimes? Listen, folks, he can do exceedingly abundantly beyond, beyond, beyond all that we can ever ask or think. Now, I have a really vivid imagination. Those that know me well can amen that. I have a vivid imagination. I can really imagine a lot, and he can do way beyond our imagination. You know what? That's why heaven's going to be so phenomenal. Because even on our best day, we haven't come close to understanding what heaven's like. Well, even on our best day in our prayers, we haven't come close to asking him what he's capable of doing. He is absolutely incredible. So there is a doxology at the end of that doctrinal section. Now, just to quickly review, just to quickly review before we get to the second half of the book. In chapter 1, there was an introduction in verses 1 through 2. In verses 3 through 14, which is one sentence, Paul tells us that God is worthy to be praised. Remember, three times, for the praise of his glory, for the praise of his glory, for the praise of his glory, first time to the Father, second time to the Son, third time respecting the Holy Spirit. And then in the third, third part of chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, he prays for wisdom and for revelation for the Ephesian believers. Then in chapter 2, it's broken down into two parts. He speaks of our new condition individually in verses 1 through 10. Then he speaks of our new condition corporately in verses 11 through 22. And then in chapter 3, 
he expounds upon the mystery, which he identifies in verse 6. In uh, the mystery in verses 1 through 13, he prays that their love would be strengthened in verses 14 through 19, and then in verses 20 through 21, he gives this incredible doxology. The key concepts, or at least these are among the key concepts in the first part of the book, are praise. We saw that. That's a very heavy concept in the beginning and in the end of the doctrinal section. You see that? And remember tonight what we're doing. So we're taking a survey, an overview of the whole thing. And if we were looking down upon this from the mountaintops and seeing how Paul structured this book, we see in the beginning of the doctrinal section he says how wonderful God is and he should be praised. At the end of the doctrinal section he says how wonderful God is and he should be praised. It begins and ends with how wonderful God is. And that's how all theology should really be. So we're taking a bird's eye view here. Key concept, praise. Another key concept in the first part of the book is unity. And then also the concept of love is a very key concept, not just in the first part of the book, but we'll see it is in the second part of the book as well. Now, a bird's eye view of the second section, which is a little easier, actually, because it's application. And typically we think of application sections as easier. At least they're easier to understand, aren't they? They may not be so easy to really do, but they're easier to understand. In the second part of the letter to the Ephesians, there is a term that is very prominent. Now, it was used in the first part, one in a negative sense and one in a positive sense, but in the second part it's used over and over, and it's the term walk. It's the Greek word peripateo. Now, walking can either be something like this, putting one foot in front of the other to go from one place to another geographically, and, and we do that. But that's not how the term is used here. This term is, is, is used of a lifestyle. It is going from one place to another place, but it's going there not geographically but spiritually. So when we use the term walk as Christians, uh, that's, that's the way we're to understand it biblically. Now, that may not be the way your next-door neighbor understands it. And I've said this before, and it, it doesn't hurt repeating. We need to be careful uh, when we're talking to people who are non-Christians and haven't been in the Scriptures. Uh, we need to be careful about using terminology that's going to sound totally foreign to them. How's your walk, brother? Well, we, you know, we just need to be careful with things like that because that, that speaks to you and me at least to some, some of the use in me, but, but, but it doesn't speak to people outside of our community. So we need to be careful and sensitive to use terminology when we're speaking outside of our community. But this term walk is very prominent in the second half of the epistle. We're, we find out here that we are too. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called in chapter 4, verse 1. We're to walk not as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind in chapter 4, verse 17. Oh, here's a big one, chapter 5, verse 2. We're to walk in love. We're to live our life in love. In, verse five, in chapter 5, verse 8, we're to walk as children of light. And then in chapter 5, verse 15, we're to walk carefully, thoughtfully, precisely, if you prefer. So as Paul uses this term, he's obviously not speaking about a movement geographically. He's speaking about a movement spiritually. In chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, Paul's primary subject is about us walking in unity. Now, I told you before, unity is one of the key themes in the first part, but he's going to carry that over. He says how important it is in chapters 1 through 3, at least if we take them as a group. Now he's going to tell us, I already told you it was important, now I want you to live that way. It makes sense. See, he's, just going, to, he's going to follow through with the flow. In verse, chapter 4, verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be careful about this. To preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And this word peace doesn't just mean 
simply a cessation of hostility. It's a, it's a bit of a deeper word than that. It includes that, to be sure. But the idea of Christian peace is a very deep and a very special word that includes more than just not fighting with one another. That's the negative side of, of uh, the, the word peace. The positive side is love. So there's much to it. Chapter 4, verse 3. In the second part of chapter 4, verses 17 through 22, he tells us to walk in holiness. In verses 17 through 22, one of the key verses is verse 22 of chapter 4, where he says that we're to lay aside the old self and then later on put on the new self. There's, there's, a, there's a part of us that we carry over from our past life. Remember back in chapter 2, he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And he, remember he talked about how and you used to live in accordance with who you were. Now, what Paul's going to say in this section is essentially you have now been declared righteous, holy, if you prefer. You've been declared that positionally. Now I want you to live consistently with your position. That's what he's saying in the last part of chapter 4. We're to lay aside that old self. It's like a garment. It's like a coat that really doesn't work anymore. It's, in, in, our, in our culture today, it would be like a coat that fits you in the 70s. And looked like it came from the 70s. You know, the polyester and all the, the stripes in there, you know, all the, these things. And, and perhaps you were, maybe you were 20, 30, 40 pounds lighter when you, when you first wore that coat. And now you come and put that coat on and come to church. Uh, people are going to think, that looks a little foolish. Well, in the same way, in the same way, uh, and, and, and your wife may say, well, actually, your wife may say, take that coat off. You're not going to church looking like that. You must have done that before. I didn't mean to, to cause a hernia over here. Well, well, yeah, in the same way that we would take that ridiculous-looking coat off that doesn't fit us anymore because that's not who we are. We're not that person from back in the 70s anymore with the long sideburns and the longer hair. But take that one off and put on a different one. And so this is the kind of imagery that he's using here to, to uh, lay aside the old self and put on the new. We're to walk in holiness. Now, some of, the, some of the commands that are given here are among the most difficult, I think. Remember I told you it was some really heavy theology, and because it's heavy theology, he's going to give you some pretty heavy application. Now, they're not always to be understood in the way that a lot of people do. A lot of people understand these commands in a very superficial way. They pick what's not their weakness, and then they apply, they, they apply that particular aspect I think when we get to this section, it'll be several weeks, actually probably several months from now when we get to that, that we'll see there's a lot more to some of these commands than what people think uh, that just on the surface. So we are to walk in holiness. There's a particular behavior that's expected of us. Now, in chapter 5, chapter 5 is uh, the concepts that begin in chapter 5 actually maybe, can I say bleed over into chapter 6. As, as you've been told many, many times by, by quite a few of us, the, the chapter divisions are not inspired. And so this, this is not going to be as neat as I would have liked to have been for my outline there. But chapter 5, the concepts here will run into chapter 6, verse 9. The first concept in, in chapter 5 is verse 2. We're, we're to walk in love. Actually, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, that's the concept. Chapter 5, verse 2, he tells us right out, Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering, a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. 
listen, I'm going to tell you right now, in case you just happen to be visiting or something, you won't be able to be back. That might be one of the key verses in understanding the entire application section. You know what's going to motivate me to love you? Understanding that God loved me. And that he loves you. But see, if I, if I have my eyes on Christ first and recognize what he did for me, it's going to make me a whole lot less likely to give you a hard time. Because I'm going to realize I was a sinner saved by grace through faith just like you. That's why sometimes the apostles will use phrases like, you're, you're to treat your wife as, as a, in a certain kind of way because she's one for whom Christ also died. Remember that? Well, here we find out that we're to walk in love, we're to live in love, we're to get from here to there by means of love, and the reason for it is because Christ already loved us. John said it, we love him because he first loved us. Paul's saying the same thing. We, we love each other. We're motivated to love each other because of what he's already done for us. Now listen, if you have a hard time, and I know we all do, we all do from time to time. We live in an age where we have a hard time loving everybody because there are some people out there that don't value at all what I value. There are some folks out there that are very, very prominent that, in fact, value the opposite. And, and I'm commanded to love them nevertheless. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to do it because they're not lovely. Don't you know what they stand for? They stand for everything that's opposed to what I stand for. But when I read a verse like this, just as Christ also loved me, you see, before we came to Christ, we weren't his friends. We weren't just neutral. We were his enemies. And he loved us in spite of that. So if we really want to get the love thing down, and I told you in the beginning, I said, you remember, forced unity is not unity. Forced love is not love. So they had to learn to love. This is one of the places where they'll learn to love. This is how we learn to do it. First, get our focus on someone who's perfect. Then we can worry about or be concerned with loving someone who's not. But if we can love the perfect one and we see that he loved us, though, we're imperfect, then it's going to be a little easier for me to love you and you to love me in spite of our perfections. We're to walk in love in verses 1 through 6. Quickly now, as we finish, we're to walk in the light in verses 7 through 14, which means we're to live consistently with divine revelation. That's, in that sense, to be understanding light as, as what God has revealed to us regarding himself and how we're to be rightly related to him. In verse chapter 5, verse 10, we're trying to learn what is pleasing to him. Now, we've got to learn that. It's not innate. Innate. Innate means something's born in. It's almost like it's reflexive. Uh, but the Word of God is not something that's born in. There's part of Eastern philosophy goes something like this. And maybe you haven't talked to anybody that's of this nature, but, but believe me, this is what they believe. They believe that everything we need to know uh, was with us when we were born. And what we've got to do is, is just try to remember it to set aside everything because that's going to come from our innermost being. It's going to all come out. That's a very Eastern mindset. The, the Christian mindset is not that. The Christian mindset is we need to learn. And that's why we're to walk in the light. And, I, and I'm going to take light, at least in a large way, to be divine revelation there. And finally, in chapter 5, verse 15, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, this one will pass through the chapter division. We're to walk wisely. Wisely. And, and wisdom means that we're to know something and we're to apply the appropriate doctrine or the appropriate theology to the appropriate situation. Now, if you've read ahead, you know that he, he reserves this, the walking wisely, for some of the real difficulties, doesn't he? Relationships between 
Husbands and wives, one of the most challenging parts, chapter 5, one of the most challenging parts of this epistle. We see uh, with proper uh, wisdom in living between children and their parents and between slaves and their masters. And that was, if we interpret it in modern times, between employers and employees. These are all very difficult applicational issues, and we need to walk wisely. We need to use the theology that we have on a daily basis if we're going to interact in an interpersonal way, in any way at all that pleases God. In any way at all, we've got to walk in love. We've got to walk wisely. We've got to walk in light of the divine revelation that we've been given. We've got to walk in unity. We've got to live our lives in holiness, with understanding that there's a certain behavior that's expected of us. And then finally, and one of, also one of the more well-known chapters or sections of the book of Ephesians, in chapter 6, verses 9 through 20, chapter 6, Verses 9 through 20, the, the armor of God section, something you, yeah, those of you that have taught Sunday school or those of you that have taught vacation Bible school, oftentimes you'll, you'll bring, we used to do this with the kids, we had a little armor set, you know, it had a shield and a helmet and a sword, and we would use those as teaching, um, teaching tools with our own children to teach them about this chapter. This is a very well-known chapter, but what Paul's doing as he concludes as he concludes this great letter that's speaking about unity and love, that's speaking about incredible theology and how God's to be praised and we should behave a certain way because of who God is, as he ends this whole thing up, he says, now listen, fellas and ladies, before I end this, I want to tell you, there's going to be opposition. It's not going to come easy for you. Because Satan doesn't want you to walk in holiness and love and unity and the light and so forth. He doesn't want that. So there's going to be a spiritual battle. It's not going to be so much a physical battle. Most of us, at least, at least those of us that are males, would much prefer a physical battle, wouldn't we? I'd much prefer somebody that's standing right in front of me and telling me exactly what he thinks of me. At least I know where the enemy is and where he's coming at me. Satan's not that stupid. Satan's not stupid at all. Satan's brilliant. And so Paul tells us, that we are to, to be aware that we are in the middle of a spiritual conflict. If you've never read them, before we get to this chapter, I'm going to invite you to get a hold of C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. I think it's some of the best information that's ever been written on this particular aspect of Scripture. And they're written in a very unique way. You know, sometimes you may have to, they're, it's, they're not long at all, but some of you may have to read them a couple of times before you really get what Lewis is doing, but once you get it, oh, they're very, very powerful. We are fighting a spiritual battle against an enemy that's really, really sharp. So if we're going to win that spiritual battle, we've got to understand it's spiritual and not physical, and the same things that work in a physical battle don't work in a spiritual battle, and we've got to put on this armor. We've got to utilize the resources, the spiritual resources that God gave us so that we can be victorious in this battle. There will be opposition. It's not going to come easy, but we should realize that the battle we fight is primarily spiritual, and we must use everything that God's given us that are spiritual assets that are at our disposal to win this fight. It is a battle. It's every bit as much a battle as the Battle of the Bulge or what happened at Normandy. It's incredibly important. In fact, you can make a case that in the long run, it's more important than those incredibly important battles. So use everything that we have as our, at our 
disposal to win this battle. And we'll spend quite a bit of time on that when we come to spiritual warfare. A lot of bad information out there about spiritual warfare. And uh, hopefully when we, by the time we get this, we'll sort all that out and we'll have a, a pretty good understanding of what's going on. And finally, uh, in, with regard to our bird's eye view as we close this down, in verses 21 through 24 of chapter 6, he has some concluding comments. Now, as we, as we examine the central teaching in Ephesians, we're going to see that it falls into in two parts, really. First, there's revelation concerning the e- eternal character of the church. Now, when we mention the church in the letter to the Ephesians, we're speaking of the church with a capital C, the, the church universal, the body of Christ, the body of believers. There is, uh, Paul will say something about, about the eternal character of the church. And second, there will be a t- teaching about the temporal conduct of the church, eternal character and temporal conduct. Ephesians reveals that the church is part of God's eternal plan, and it grows as a result of God's power, of God's power working through believers' lives, overcoming spiritual enemies. 